Chapter 7 He Throws Off the Mask When he came home late and drunk like this, if his wife spoke even a word to him about where he'd been or why he abused himself in this way, even though her meek words were spoken in love, he called her horrid names such as whore, bitch, and mean woman. And it went well for her if she ducked from his fingers and heels. Sometimes he brought his punks home, but once they left, he brought great misery to his wife if she had not entertained them in all possible ways, and to have done so lovingly. In this way, this good woman was forced by her husband, madman, to endure nothing but disappointments in regards to all he had promised her, or anything she hoped to receive from him. But the thing that added a pressing weight to all her sorrow was that he tried to make her put away her religion in the same way he'd cast it aside for himself. He wouldn't permit her to attend the preaching of the word of Christ or attend any of the rest of his divine appointments for the health and salvation of her soul. Now he taunted her with disapproval and criticism when he spoke about her preachers and would welcome and even raise scandals about them to her great grief and suffering. At this point she scarcely dared to go to an honest neighbor's house or to have a good book in her hand, especially when he had his companions in the house or when his head was muddled with drink. Also, when he saw she was discouraged, he taunted and mocked her in the presence of his companions, calling her his religious wife, his prim dam, and other similar names. He also made fun of her when he was out among his reckless friends. If she asked him, as sometimes she would, to let her go out to a sermon, he replied rudely, Stay at home. Stay at home and look after your business. We can't live by listening to sermons. If she still urged, and he finally let her go, then he would say to her, Go, if you dare. But he also accused her of giving what he had, his money, to her ministers, when in fact the vile wretch had spent what money he had on his useless companions. This was the life Mr. Badman's good wife lived just a few months after he had married her. Scripture The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but the just are delivered with wisdom. Proverbs 11 verse 9 Without a doubt, this was a disappointment. A disappointment, to be sure, as much as I think the poor woman ever had. One would think the deceitful fellow might have let her have a little money, since, to be honest, she brought him such a sweet sum as her portion. She brought hundreds into his house. One would think he should have let her spend a little on her own desires, since she wanted it only for the service and worship of God. But could she win him over to grant that? No, not a bit, not even if it would have saved her life. Sometimes she would sneak out when he was away from home on a journey or was spending time among his drunken companions, but with all the secrecy imaginable. The poor woman had one advantage, though. She urged all her neighbors not to divulge her secret, and even though many work harnel, they still wouldn't betray her or mention her going out to hear the word if they saw it. Rather, they endeavored to hide it from Mr. Badman. This behavior of his toward her 
was enough to break her heart. It certainly was, and effectually it did. It killed her in time. Often when she sat by herself, she mournfully wept about her situation, crying out, Woe is me, that I sojourn in Mesek, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Psalm 120, verse 5. My soul has long dwelt with those that hate peace. Psalm 120, verse 6. What shall be given unto thee? Or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Psalm 120, verse 3. I am a woman grieved in spirit. My husband has bought me and sold me for his lusts. It wasn't me he wanted, but my money. I would be satisfied if he had only it, and I could have my freedom. This she said, not from contempt about him as a person, but because of his moral conditions, and because she saw that by his hypocritical tongue he had almost brought her to extreme poverty. But not only that, he had also robbed her of the word of God. I see it is a deadly thing to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If this woman had a good husband, how happily they might have lived together. Such a husband would have prayed for her, taught her, and encouraged her in the faith and ways of God. But now instead of this, there's only the opposite for the poor creature. It certainly is a deadly thing. And consequently, by the word of God, his people are forbidden to be joined in marriage with them. Scripture. Be ye not, it says, unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? And what communion does light have with darkness? And what concord does Christ have with Belial? Or what part do the faithful have with the unfaithful? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 through 16 There can be no agreement where such matches are made. Even God himself has declared the opposite from the beginning of the world. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Genesis 3 verse 15 Therefore, he says in Daniel 2 verse 43, They shall not cleave one to another, even as iron does not mix with clay. I say they can't agree. They can't be one, and therefore they should be aware of this from the beginning, and not lightly receive such a person into their affections. God has often made such matches bitter, especially to his own. Such matches are, as God said of Eli's sons who were spared, to consume the eyes and to grieve the heart. Oh, the wailing and weeping they have experienced, because they've been yoked in this way, especially if they were willing to go against light and good counsel to the contrary to be yoked in this way. Sadly, in Mr. Badman's case, he deluded her with his tongue and pretended to be reformed. Well, she should have gone more warily and exerted a little more effort. What if she had informed some of her best, most perceptive and godly friends about this? What if she had engaged a godly minister or two to talk with Mr. Badman? Also, what if she had stayed hidden and waited for him to discern if he acted differently behind her back than when he was before her? 
And besides, I truly think if she had told the congregation about it and appealed to them to spend time in prayer to God about it, and if she thought she must have him and accepted him based on his godliness as determined by the judgment of others rather than her own, because she knew them to be godly, wise, and unbiased men, she would have had more peace all her life than she did, because she trusted her own poor, raw, womanish judgment. Love is blind and won't see anything wrong when others may see a hundred faults. Scripture In the multitude of counselors there is salvation. Proverbs 11 verse 14 As a result, I say she shouldn't have trusted her own thoughts in the matter regarding his goodness. As to his physical appearance, she was best to judge, because she was the person to be pleased. But as to his godliness, the Word was the fittest judge, along with those who best understand it, because in that way God is pleased. I wish all young women would take care not to be deceived with the flattering words, lying speeches, and artful schemes of wicked men. Well, this is all in the past with this poor woman and can't be called back, so that others learn from her misfortunes, so they don't fall into her same suffering situation. That's what I say. Let them be mindful, for fear their rashness will hurt them like it did this poor woman. And I think those who are still single and tempted to marry such a person as Mr. Badman should inform and warn themselves in this matter before they entangle themselves by going to someone already caught in the snare. Ask their advice. Ask them about their life and the suitableness or unsuitableness of their marriage. Surely they would sound the alarm about any non-equality, unsuitableness, disadvantages, uneasiness, or sins that accompany such marriages, things that would make them think twice for as long as they live. But the bird in the air doesn't know the notes of the bird caught in the snare until she finds herself there. Besides, the makeup of such marriages involves Satan, carnal reason and lust, and inconsideration plays a big part too. Where these things carry power and influence, plans, though never thought to be so destructive, will move forward. For this reason, I fear that with such little warning, Young women are apt to suffer Mr. Badman's wife's affliction. But aren't there dissuasive arguments to put before such women to prevent their future misery? Yes, there's the law of God that forbids marriage with unbelievers. These kinds of marriages are condemned even for creatures void of reason. First, it's forbidden by the law of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New. In the Old, it says, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Deuteronomy 7 verse 3. In the New Testament it is also forbidden. Scripture. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Let them marry whom they want, only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39. Here in Scripture we see a prohibition plainly forbidding the believer to marry the unbeliever. Therefore, they shouldn't do it. Again, 
These reprehensible marriages are condemned by unreasoning creatures that won't couple, except with their own sort. For example, will the sheep couple with a dog, the partridge with a crow, or the pheasant with an owl? No, they strictly bind themselves to those of their own sort, and when people see or hear the opposite, it causes all the world to wonder. Man is the only creature most likely to wink at and allow these unlawful mixtures of men and women, because man is a sinful beast. For this reason, by his actions, he will rebelliously oppose and violate the law of his God and Creator. Nor will these or other questions be considered worth answering by him, such as, What fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. What concord? Verse 15. What agreement? Verse 16. What fellowship can there be in such marriages? But besides this, the danger such people commonly run into should be a dissuasive argument to others to stop them from doing the same. Because aside from distresses similar to Mr. Badman's wife, many who have had very hopeful beginnings spiritually, by virtue of the harms caused by these unlawful marriages, have miserably and fearfully fallen short. For it doesn't take long after such marriages for conviction, the first step towards heaven, to cease. This is followed by the cessation of prayer, the next step towards heaven, as well as the termination of hungering and thirsting after salvation. In a word, such marriages alienate them from the word, from their godly and faithful friends, and bring them into carnal company again among worldly friends and also into fleshly delights in which they have both sinfully lived and miserably perished. And this is one reason why God has forbidden this kind of unequal marriage. Scripture For they will turn away thy son from following me that they may serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled upon you and destroy thee suddenly. Deuteronomy 7 verse 4 Now note that some in Israel, despite this prohibition, went on to marry heathens and unbelievers. But what followed? Scripture They served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled with their own works, and went a-whoring with their own inventions. Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. Psalm 106, verses 36 through 40. But let's get back to Mr. Badman. Did he have any children by his wife? Yes, seven. I don't doubt they were badly brought up. Of the seven, one of the children loved his mother dearly and constantly listened to her voice. So she had the opportunity to instruct that child in the principles of Christian religion, and he became a very gracious child. But Mr. Badman couldn't tolerate that child, and so he seldom spoke a pleasant word to him, and often scowled and frowned at him, 
and spoke rudely and relentlessly to him. And while this child was the feeblest of the seven, he felt the weight of his father's fingers most often. Three of his children directly followed in his steps and began to be as vile as he had been in his youth. The others became a kind of mix of professors of faith, not so bad as their father, nor so good as their mother, but somewhere between the two. They had their mother's ideas and their father's actions, and were much like those you read about in the book of Nehemiah. These children were half from Ashdod. They could not speak in the Jews' language, but rather according to the language of each people. Nehemiah 13, verse 24. What you're talking about can be seen, and if I'm not missing the mark, I'd say it happens often in situations where such unlawful marriages are agreed to. It sometimes does, and the reason, with respect to their parents, is this. In cases where one parent is godly and the other is ungodly and vile, though they can agree in conceiving children, they struggle once their children are born. The godly parent strives for the child by prayers, counsel, and good examples. They work to bring up the child wholly in body and soul and fit for the kingdom of heaven. But ungodly parents want the child to become like them, wicked, immoral, and sinful. And so both parents instruct their children accordingly. Did I say instruct? Yes, and by example, too. Examples in line with their individual ways of thinking. The godly, like Hannah, presents her Samuel to the Lord, but the ungodly, like those who went before them, are in favor of offering their children to Molech, to an idol, to sin, to the devil, and to hell. And so when it comes to the children, one observes the law of their mother and is saved from destruction, while another does what their father did. This was the situation with Mr. Badman and his wife. Between them they each had some of their children believing as they did, but the other three were like mongrels with a mix of both. They were like those you read about in Second Kings. They feared the Lord, but served their own idols. As I said, these children had their mother's beliefs, and I will add her profession of faith, too. But they also had their father's lusts and, to some degree, his manner of life. Now their father didn't like them because they had their mother's tongue, and their mother didn't like them because they still had their father's heart and manner of life. They were undeniably suitable company for good or bad, but the good wouldn't trust them because they were bad, and the bad wouldn't trust them because they were good. To be exact, the good wouldn't trust them because their manner of living was bad and the bad wouldn't trust them because, in their words, they were good. So they were forced to join with those similar to them, namely, people who were hypocrites like themselves. They fit with them, and with them they lived and died. Poor woman, she must have been bewildered. Yes, and also the poor children who are ever sent into the world as the fruit of the loins and under the management of such a father as Mr. Badman. You're right, because such children are faced with all manner of disadvantages, but we must say nothing, because this too is the sovereign will of God. While we can't in any way object against God, 
We can still talk about the advantages and disadvantages children face by having either godly or ungodly parents. You're right, we can. So, since we are talking about it, can you tell me briefly what advantage those children who have godly parents have above others? I can, but first I must premise what I have to say with these two or three things. First, they don't have the advantage of election because of their father's intentions or objective. Second, they are born like any other, the children of wrath, even though they come from godly parents. Third, grace doesn't come to them as an inheritance because they have godly parents. Now that we've made these things clear, I will proceed with a short list of advantages. First, the children of godly parents are the children of many prayers. They are prayed for before and prayed for after they are born. And the prayers of a godly father and godly mother accomplish much. Second, they have the advantage of what parental restraint is possible. Their parents can see what evils they are inclined toward and keep their behavior in check. This is a second mercy. Third, they have the advantage of godly instruction and of being told what is and what is not right in the eyes of the Lord. Fourth, these ways are commended to them and spoken of positively in their hearing, that they are good. Number five. Also, such children are guided away from evil company, from evil books, and from being taught the habits of swearing, lying, Sabbath-breaking, mocking good men and good things, and other similar things. This is a very great mercy. Sixth, they also have the benefit of a godly life set before them doctrinally by their parents, and that doctrine is backed with a godly and holy example, and all these are very great advantages. Now on the other side of this, the children of ungodly parents lack all these advantages and so are more in danger of being carried away by the error of the wicked. For ungodly parents don't pray for their children, nor can or do they thoroughly instruct them. They don't attempt to restrain them from evil in a godly manner, nor do they keep them from evil company. They aren't grieved over such things, and they don't warn their children to be wary of such evil actions, which are extremely hated by God and all good men. They let their children break the Sabbath, swear, lie, and be wicked and vain. They don't encourage their children to live a holy life, nor do they set a good example for them to see. No, they do the reverse of all this and put a barrier between their children and the love of God and all good men when they can, as soon as they are born. Therefore, it's a very great judgment of God on children to be the offspring of base and ungodly men. Scripture They were sons of fools and men without names. They were lower than the earth. Job 30, verse 8. Well, before we leave the topic of Mr. Badman's wife and children, I have a question, if you please. I want to ask a little more detail about one thing that I'm sure you can satisfy for me. What's that, attentive? A while ago, you said that this Mr. Badman wouldn't allow his wife to go out to hear the godly ministers 
as she liked to do, and that he said, if she did, she had better never come home again. Did he often say such things to her? Yes, he often did so. I've told you this and more, but other things caused her trouble too. Please go on. All right, I will. Once on a Lord's Day she was going to hear a sermon, and Mr. Badman was unwilling for her to go. But it seems this time she showed more courage than usual, and she put forth a great many reasonable words and pleas. She hoped by them she might perhaps prevail, but it did no good. Finally, she said she would go anyway, and gave this reason for her decision. She said, I have a husband but also a god. My God has commanded me, and that upon pain of damnation, to be a continual worshipper of Him, and to walk in the way of His established duties. I have a husband, but also a soul, and my soul ought to mean more to me than all the world. I will look after and care for this soul of mine, and if I can, provide it a heaven for its habitation. You are commanded to love me, as you love your own body and I love you in this way, but to tell the truth, I give preference to my soul, and I will seek its salvation before all the things of this world. Scripture For what shall it profit a man, if he shall gain the whole world, and lose his own soul? Mark 8, verse 36 At this, first he breathed an ugly wish against her, and fell into a fearful rage, and swore that if she did go, he would make both her and all her damnable brotherhood, for it pleased him to call them such, regret their coming there. What would he mean by such a thing? You can easily guess what he meant. He meant he would become a passionate communicator, and so either weary out those she loved from meeting together to worship God, or make them pay dearly for doing so. He knew if he did this, it would displease every vein of her tender heart. Do you really think Mr. Badman would have been so dishonorable? Yes, because he had enough hatred and hostility in his heart to do it. But he was also a tradesman, and he knew he must live alongside his neighbors. So because of that bit of knowledge, he refrained himself in his anger and didn't do it. But as I said, he had enough hatred and hostility in his heart to make him do it, but he thought it would be harmful to his trade, and so he decided to do these three things. First, he put others in place to mistreat and abuse her friends. Second, he was glad when he heard about any harm that happened to them. And third, he laughed at her when he saw she was troubled about them. So that was Mr. Badman's way. Wasn't he afraid of the judgments of God that flew round him at that time? He didn't give a single thought to the judgment or mercy of God, because otherwise he wouldn't have lived like he did. But what judgments do you mean? I'm talking about judgments that might have made Mr. Badman hang his head if he had seriously taken notice of them. Have you ever heard of a person like him being breached by the judgments of God? Yes and I believe you have too, though you must consider it extraordinary. To my astonishment and wonder, I have. In that case, please tell me what you know in regards to this, and perhaps I can also tell you something on the same subject. 
In our town, there was one man known as W.S., who led a very wicked life. He felt he must spy on believers and speak against them to the magistrate. He was diligent in this business and kept watch at night, climbed trees and roamed the woods during the day to find out, if possible, where believers met. Because at that time, meetings took place out in the open in the fields. He cursed them bitterly and swore most fearfully about what he would do to them when he found them. After he had followed this strategy for a while, like a lunatic, and had done some harm to the people, he was stricken by the hand of God. First, although he could speak naturally at will, he was now taken with a flattering in his speech. For weeks he couldn't speak any other way, much like a drunk man. Then he started to drool and slobber from his mouth. It was so excessive that sometimes the saliva would hang from his mouth to about halfway to the ground. Along with this, a weakness overtook the sinews in the back of his neck so that he often couldn't look up, unless he clasped his hand hard against his forehead and held his head up that way. After this, his ability to speak went quite away until he could do nothing but grunt and make an ugly noise like a swine or a bear, to let people know he was offended or pleased. He continued in this situation for about a half a year or thereabouts. In all other ways he was well and could go about his business, except once when he fell from the bell as it hangs in our steeple. It's a wonder that didn't kill him. But after that he walked about taking care of business, until God had made a sufficient spectacle of his judgment of his sin. Then all of a sudden he was stricken and died miserably. And that was the end of him and his doings. And while we are at it, let me tell you of another informer who felt it his duty to report to the magistrate any knowledge of violations of law. This took place about four miles from St. Nayat's where a gentleman had a manservant who acted as a personal attendant to his employer. This lusty young man wanted to be an informer, and it distressed some people. He perfected his delivery of information so effectually against some that there was nothing further to do but have the constables bring trouble or hardship on the people, so he could have their money or goods. And from what I heard, he hurried them to do it. Now one day, while he was in the heat of his work, while he stood by the fireside, it seems he decided to help himself to a sop from the pan hanging from the spit. So he readied the piece of bread to dip it into the sauce, when suddenly a dog, some say his own dog, took a distaste at something and bit his master's leg. All the methods used to cure him did nothing, and the bite turned gangrene. It turns out that the wound was his death and a dreadful one at that. My relator said the man lay in a sorry condition due to this bite from the beginning until his flesh rotted off before he left this world. But why do I need examples of particular people when the judgment of God against these kinds of people has been demonstrated in most of the counties in England where such poor creatures lived? I wish that neither I nor anybody else could tell you more of these stories true stories that are neither lie nor fiction. Well, I've heard about both of these myself, 
along with others just as remarkable. But let's leave those who are like this behind to others or to the coming of Christ who will justify or condemn them as the merit of their work will require. Or if they repent and find mercy, I will be glad to hear that as well, because I don't wish a curse on the soul of my enemy. There can be no enjoyment in telling such stories, though to hear them may give us a sense of satisfaction. They can remind us that there is a God who judges on the earth and who doesn't forget or delay to hear the cry of the destitute. These stories also carry both caution and advice to those who survive such situations. Let us tremble at the judgments of God and be afraid of sinning against Him, and it will be our protection. It will go well with those who fear God. Well, as you have suggested, I think we've spoken enough about these kinds of people at this time. If you please, let's return to talking about Mr. Badman, if you have any more to say about him. More? We've scarcely begun to thoroughly cover all the particulars which are full of badness. We've only looked into them slightly, but we will let them go and move on with his story. You've heard about the sins of his youth, about his apprenticeship, and how he set up his business, married, and what a life he led with his wife. Now I will tell you more about his trickery. He had a real knack for dishonesty and deception. As I said before, he was obliged to serve an apprenticeship, and in all these things he couldn't have been more cunning. He couldn't have been more skillful at it. Or perhaps so scheming either. No one can teach goodness like God himself. No one can teach a man concerning sin, dishonesty, and deception like the devil, whom I perceive Mr. Badman went to learn from in his childhood and until the end of his life. But please, go ahead and start. All right, I will. You might remember that I told you about his financial condition before he married, and how he married a rich wife and used her money to pay his debts. Now, when he paid his debts, he had some money left and set up his business again as briskly as ever. He kept a great shop, hustled a great trade, and ran himself into great debt again. But this time he wasn't just in debt to one or two, but fell into the debt of many. In the end, he owed some thousands, and this went on for a good while. To better pursue his scheming plan, he studied how to please all men to make himself look good to any company. He could now be like them and talk like them. That is, if a potential business contact listed, then he listed, when he sensed that by doing so he might make them either his customer or creditor for his commodities. When he dealt with honest men, he did so in the same way honest men did. He acted like them, talked like them, and seemed as sober as them. He talked about things such as justice and religion just like them, and he talked against excess and the pleasures of gluttony and intemperance, but primarily he spoke against habitual lewdness and the excessive, unlawful indulgence of lust. Yes, he dishonestly put on a show, as if he disliked such things. Again, when he landed among those who were bad, then he acted like them but more cautiously and carefully in order to be sure they were like him. Once he verified them to be scoundrels like himself, 
He supported it openly and acted like them, saying things like, Damn them and sink them, as they say. If they criticized good men, he joined in. If they complained about religion, he matched them. If they talked nasty, worthless, or carelessly, so did he. If they were in favor of drinking, swearing, whoring, or any similar wrongdoing, so was he. This was now the path he walked, and he could do it all, as well as any man alive, with his plotting and schemes. And with such success he thought himself a perfect man, looking at himself as nothing but a boy until now. Hearing all this, what do you think about Mr. Badman now? Think? Why, well, I think he was an atheist. Because no one but an atheist can do such things. I say a man such as this Mr. Badman can be nothing else. He must be a rank and stinking atheist, because anyone who believes in God or the devil, heaven or hell, or death and judgment hereafter can't act like Mr. Badman did. I mean, if he could do these things without reluctance and examining of his conscience, if he had no sorrow and remorse for such abominable sins as these, Informer, are you in the tree? Take care, lest you there hanged be. Look likewise to your foot, old well, lest if you slip, you fall to elf. No, he felt no such thing as reluctance or remorse of conscience for these things. He actually considered them to be excellent qualities proceeding from his accomplishments, the essence of his cleverness, his rare and singular virtues that few besides him could claim to be the masters of. And so those who were overwhelmed and stopped at things and couldn't in good conscience for fear of death and judgment do such things, he called them fools and simpletons and accused them of being frightened by talk of unseen bugbears. He encouraged them, if they wanted to truly be men, to work hard to attain this excellent art of his. He often pleased himself with thoughts about what he could do in this regard. He'd say to himself, I can be religious and irreligious. I can be anything or nothing. I can swear and speak against swearing. I can lie and speak against lying. I can drink, keep company with women of ill fame, be immoral, defraud, and not be troubled because of it. I enjoy myself, and I am master of my own ways, for they do not master me. This I have attained with much study, great care, and more pains. But he knew he didn't dare divulge this to his wife. He only said such things to himself or to his associates, with whom he knew he could say anything. Did I call him an atheist? I might better call him a devil, or a man possessed with one devil, if not with many. I don't think there's any a man like this which can be found, though what is said of King Ahaz is true, that he sinned more and more. Scripture. King Ahaz, in the time of his distress, trespassed even more against the Lord. Second Chronicles 28, verse 22. And of Ahab, that he sold himself to work wickedness. First Kings 21, verse 25. And of the men of Sodom, that they were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Genesis 13, verse 13. He was no doubt an atheist, if there is such a thing as an atheist in the world. 
But for all his brags of perfection and security in his wickedness, I believe at times God let down fire from heaven into his conscience. Scripture God distributes sorrows upon them, the wicked in his anger. Job 21, verse 17 True, I believe he quickly put it out and grew more wicked and desperate afterward. But this also led to his destruction, which you'll hear about in time. But I don't agree with your assumption that there are only a few such people in the world, unless you mean those with the degree of wickedness he attained. For otherwise, there's no doubt an abundance of people like him, of the same mind, principles, and conscience, and who put them into practice. Yes, I believe many endeavored to reach the same stature of wickedness, and all of them are like him concerning the judgment of the law. Their desire to attain hellish cleverness will not excuse them at the day of judgment. When it comes to all knowledge, you know that some are more cunning than others, and that's how it is in the ability and practice of wickedness. Some are double and some sevenfold more the children of hell than others, and yet they are all the children of hell. Otherwise, they'd all be masters, and none would be students in the school of wickedness. But there must be masters, and there must be learners. Mr. Badman was a master in this art, and for that reason it follows that he must be a principal rogue. You are right. I can see that some men, even though they desire it, aren't so cunning in the practice of wickedness as others but are what some call fools and dunces to the rest. Their minds and limited capacities won't serve them to act and do so wickedly. But Mr. Badman didn't lack a wicked mind to scheme or a wicked heart to put his wickedness into practice. True, yet on the day of judgment, I say such men will be judged, not only for what they are, but also for what they desire to be. For if the thought of the foolish is sin, Proverbs 24, verse 9, then without a doubt, the desire of the foolish is more sin. And if the desire is for more, the endeavor to gain it must also be more and more. So the one who isn't naturally a scheming atheist and evildoer, if he desires to be so, if he tries to be so, he will be judged and condemned to hell for it. The law judges men, as I said, according to what they want to be. Scripture, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew 5, verse 28. By the same rule, he who wants to steal does steal. He who wants to cheat does cheat. He who wants to swear does swear. And the one who wants to commit adultery does so. For God judges men according to the working of their minds, and says, For as he thinks in his soul, so is he. Proverbs 23, verse 7. This means what he is in his heart, in his intentions, in his desires, and in his endeavors. And I say that God's law lays hold of the desires, intentions, and endeavors, even as it lays hold of the act of wickedness itself. Scripture. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, in no wise. But I did not know sin except by the law. 
for neither would I have known lust if the law did not say, Thou shalt not covet. Romans 7, verse 7. And so a man who desires to be as bad as Mr. Badman, who desires to be so wicked, with many desires and intentions in his heart, even though he will never attain that proficiency in wickedness, he will still be judged as bad, because it was his desire to be such a wicked person. I still can't get the amount of wickedness found in Mr. Badman out of my mind. This hard, desperate, or perhaps better said, this diabolical frame of heart was a foundation in him and a groundwork for all his acts and deeds that were evil. The heart, the desperate wickedness of it, is the foundation and groundwork of all. Atheism, professed and practical, springs out of the heart along with every other kind of evil. It's not the bad deeds that make a man bad. In truth, the one who does bad deeds is already a bad man, because he must be wicked before he can do wickedness. Scripture Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. 1 Samuel 24, verse 13 You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Matthew 7, verses 16 through 18 Now I understand why Mr. Badman was so dishonorable as to scheme to get a wife through deception and to mistreat her like a scoundrel once they were married. It was because his heart was wicked and prepared to act wickedly. You may be sure of it. Scripture For he had said that it is what comes out of the man that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, come forth the evil thoughts, the adulteries, the fornications, the murders, the thefts, the covetousness, the wickedness, the deceit, the lasciviousness, the evil eye, the slander, the pride, the unwiseness, all these evil things come out from within and defile the man. Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. Mr. Badman was a man whose naughty mind inclined him to make use of any of these to gratify his lust, to promote his plans, to seek revenge, to seek for mere personal gratification, to enrich himself or to live in gross wickedness in the foolish pleasures and pastimes of this life. He did all these to the highest degree. If he saw the opportunity or could for a sum of money or by violating a vow accomplish his purpose, he did it. A sum of money? Since he married a wife with so much money, couldn't he have done almost anything he wanted because he had such money? Stop there. You have to realize that some of Mr. Badman's sins were costly, like his drinking, the use of the services of prostitutes, and keeping other bad company. Even though he was a man who had many ways to get money, he had too many ways to spend it as well. You mean to say his trade was so good, even though he was such a bad man? Or was his calling so lucrative for him that it kept his purse full? even though he was a great spender. 
No, it wasn't his trade that did it. It was that he had a crafty trade, too. Another way to get money, and that by hatsful and pocketsful at a time. I trust he wasn't a highwayman robbing people, was he? I will be careful in what I say about that. While some have muttered about him riding out now and then, and how no one knew where he went overnight, but that he came home all dirty and weary the next morning, that is not my point. Please, let me know it, if you think it is suitable. <laughs>